Welcome back to the Red Dice Stories. I'm John, your host, and today I'm going to be answering some of your voicemails. And our first voicemail is by the one, the only, Glenn Halstrom, a.k.a. Old Man Grognard. Take it away, Glenn. Hi, John. Old Man Grognard here. Just listen to your Grab a Map Philosophy episode. What a good episode. And it's given me ideas for an episode of my show, which I thank you for. Uh, I've done the same thing. Dyson is an invaluable resource. I've used him for all kinds of things I did, even even during prep. I had a gangbusters game where I needed an abandoned mine. He happened to have one. I only used like 150 yards of it or something because it was a standoff for a bad guy and the police and such. So it worked out. It was really nice. He does some great stuff. I've got other ways to do, you know, grab a map type things. Um, you know, I can, I throw dice a lot. I throw dice on a paper um, and things like that. Even a, uh, I just do a flow chart too. And then just ad lib it on the table. But anyway, great episode. Thank you very much for doing that. And I'll catch you later. Thanks very much for the calling, Glenn. Greatly appreciated. Very glad you enjoyed the episode. And yeah, Dyson puts out some top quality stuff. I think you make a very important point, though, that even if you do grab a map as per that episode, you don't need to use the whole map. Let's face it, even if you only use 10% of a map, that's 10% of a map you've not really got to plan out yourself. And you can always add extra corridors or rooms or whatever to tweak it to your specification. Or hell, as I've sometimes done, even just grab a load of different maps and just mash them all together. You know, you draw in some corridors to like link them together and you are good to go. But it can still save you an awful lot of time. Well, you mentioned them. Um, gangbusters i presume that's it is that the bx version of gangbusters i've heard you mention it a few times on your show i keep meaning to get around to looking into that maybe i'll have to pick up a copy in future i'm a bit behind on my podcast listening again no big surprise there you know work these things happen but i look forward to hearing your episode as for the idea of just throwing down some dice or drawing a flowchart, I think that's a really great idea. Myself and Hannah did a YouTube video not long ago where Hannah talked about how she's generated many sort of campaign maps by throwing some dice down and having the dice represent different things. And as I've leaned to more towards more point crawl sort of stuff in my games, I've definitely started uh, overlaying almost flowcharts on top of maps I'm using to sort of speed the dungeon exploration. And we've yet to see how that shakes out because we've not really used any of them yet, just the players haven't gone to those particular areas. But I'm interested to see how that shakes out. But thank you very much for your call-in. Greatly appreciated. And next up, we have Randy, one half of the dynamic duo from Biggest Geekers. Hey, John and Hannah, this is Randy. Just listen to your When Is It Okay to Fudge? And I lean toward mostly never. I mean, it's just a game. You can roll up new characters. But having said that, I have gone. I've been playing for 40 years. I have I have waffled from the GM who <clears throat> feels super merciful and wants to hold their character's hands. And, you know, we'll fudge things a little bit. Um, and I've also uh, done the other one where I fudged for the monsters where I wanted to make a cool fight. And I've mostly found that that's me trying to tell my own story. Um, I thought it was pretty hilarious how you started off, John, with uh, 
the example of the pitchfork pitchfork wielding farmers deciding to go kill the big dragon they heard about. I had that very thing very thing happen in one of my early campaigns. Uh, my players just wouldn't listen, wouldn't listen, and they decided they're going to kill this dragon. And they were fourth level, and they came against ancient dragon, and yeah, I murdered them all. So lesson learned. So good, good discussion. I think there's probably a lot more to this than meets the eye too. So keep up the good work. Thanks very much, Randy. Glad you liked the episode. And yeah, as we said in the episode, it's not really a sort of black and white, sort of one-dimensional argument. I think, to be honest, when we sort of come down to it, with like dice fudging, as with anything, if it's sort of, you don't go to one extreme or the other, you know, you're, you're never sort of fudging or you're always fudging. I think if you can get some sort of level of balance, that's probably for the best. As with yourself, I lean more towards the rolling dice out in the open and not fudging dice rolls whereas as you heard from the episode Hannah's probably a bit more charitable than myself but it's all about finding that balance at the end of the day that works for yourself and obviously for your group and next up is Taylor from the podcast Clerics Wear Ringmail Good morning, Hannah. This is Taylor of Clerics Wear Ringmail calling in to leave a message for you and for your lovely co-host John regarding the fudging of dice. As I had mentioned on MeWe, the only time it's appropriate to fudge dice is when you are making the novelty chocolate variety. To speak to some of the scenarios, a player comes in and has had a bad day and needs to win in order to feel better. That doesn't resonate with me. It isn't the game, the winning. The game itself is an escape from reality. If reality is bumming me out, I intentionally force myself to go into a game because I know that I'll feel better halfway in. If I wanted to stick with being bummed out in reality, I would work on my taxes. And thinking about playing with kids, I would probably, if I wanted to not kill their characters, replace some of the combat encounters with puzzles, replace some of the more deadly traps with intellectual challenges. And that way, one, they'd still have fun. And two, when their parents say, what are you doing teaching my children how to summon demons? I can say, yes, but I'm also teaching them math. Everybody wins. In a slightly less silly tone, I tend to agree with John. If fudging dice in play is tempting, that seems to imply that there's another problem that is behind the necessity. That said, there being no good reason to fudge dice in play, I can tell you where I fudge dice constantly all the time, in prep. If I am stocking an adventure, I will procedurally generate it, uh, rolling for monsters, rolling for their numbers, rolling for their treasure. But if a monster doesn't fit, or if the treasure is a little anemic, or maybe a little too generous, I will adjust it according to what would make the adventure more fun. If an NPC is supposed to present a certain way, but the dice say that they don't, sometimes I'll adjust the NPC, because truthfully, <clears throat> I tend to roll things like that prior to determining what their presentation is like. But if it's more important for, say, the leader of an organization to be a paladin, I'm not going to bother rolling his stats because I know what they have to be. So to submit 
one place where you can, and I would encourage you to fudge dice, prep. Thanks for doing what you do. Looking forward to your next episode. Hi, Taylor. Thanks for the voicemail. Really good to hear from you. All lots of interesting points. And, yeah, glad to get some discussion going with this topic. Yeah, and I think we'd probably both agree, wouldn't we, love, that, you know, prep is certainly an area where, you know, if you're, like, randomly stocking a dungeon or something, if you get some dice rolls and you're like, oh, that's going to be, like, a crappy session, yeah, I think neither of us would object to, like, you're fudging the mm-hmm. dice or making that decision to change it down as long as you get a better game. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, just to echo Hannah, thank you very much for your call, Taylor. Much appreciated. Cheers. And next up is the voicemail king himself, Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast. So what's on your mind, Jason? Okay, Jason here. Thank you for putting out these episodes like you're doing. I really appreciate them. As far as the Pick the Map episode, great job. I've done that. I've definitely grabbed something online and just ran it. Maybe the way the designer intended. Maybe I just grabbed a map and did my own thing with it. But as far as the episode with Hannah on Fudging Dice, it was awesome hearing Hannah on the air again. And I'm going to give you a couple calls here. Scenario number one, you know, they're on their way out of the dungeon and there's a trap. I don't think it's fudging if the DM decides, you know what, that trap's not going to be there. You know, I, I think that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. Now, uh, but I agree with John. If you do decide to roll the dice at that point, then you need to stick with what's on the dice. But I don't think the DM modifying the dungeon as they go is necessarily a bad thing. Although, you know, that can get complicated. Hey there, Jason. Glad you enjoyed the episode. And yeah, it's an interesting point. As we were saying in the episode, you know, I'm really not a fan of sort of fudging the dice once you've actually rolled them, like changing the result. But I think sort of changing your adventure before you get to the physical act of rolling the dice. I don't think anyone would object so much to that because isn't that sort of what the GM's supposed to do, you know? Yeah, I think one of the things when we were doing the uh, Fudging Dice episode that kept coming up was that if you'd planned ahead, you didn't need to. And even just deciding at the gaming table to skip out a bullet point or cross a room off your map, isn't quite as bad as fudging the dice once you've rolled them. Yeah, and I think for, I think for me, to be honest, I mean, if someone else, like another GM, like fudges a dice, I'm probably not going to get on the case about it as long as I'm enjoying the game that I'm playing in. Whereas I think for me, because I tend, I, I'm one of these people where I'm like my own worst critic when it comes to GM, and it doesn't matter how much prep I've done, I always feel like I've not done enough prep. I could have been prepping for like every day for a week, and I still feel like I've not done enough prep. <laughs> So I always think if I've put something in and then I've got to that point where I'm, I'm having to fudge the dice, I always feel like I've sort of not planned it well enough that I've had to do that. And I think that's just a personal thing for myself where I sort of beat myself up a little bit about that because I'm always sort of thinking, like, oh, I could have prepped that better. I could have done that a bit better. I could have been more prepared for this, which is ridiculous in some sense because you can't be prepared for everything that's like the beauty of the game but i suppose it's just one of my little like mental ticks i've got as a as a gm mm-hmm. and this might come up in further scenarios we're still just talking about scenario number one but in in the case hannah specific case hannah presented you've beaten the bad big bad you have 10 minutes less in this left in the session they just want to search this one last room 
you know, if you want to delete the traps or the bad guys in that room, just let them get whatever's in there and get out. I don't have a problem with that. I really don't. I, I think if you if you go editing the dungeon willy-nilly, though, so I want to recant a little bit what I said earlier, I, I think you need to be careful. If you're saying, oh, well, they're getting through pretty easy, so I'm going to add five more orcs to this encounter. I'm going to subtract eight orcs from that encounter. I mean, you can definitely do that. You have that purview as a GM. And, and to some degree... You can, there can, that's a whole different podcast editing the power of the enemy to match the power of the party, right? But for the most part, I don't think you should really do it, but I think it's okay to do in certain situations. Yeah, I think when it comes to traps, Jason, it's an interesting point. I mean, like, so I play old school essentials and BX and stuff like that. And as far as I'm aware, obviously, someone correct me if I'm wrong, with a trap, it's certainly in old school essentials. Even if there is a trap in your module and the players walk over it and they trigger it or whatever, they, they meet whatever conditions are necessary to set up the trap. There's still only a two in six chance of the trap actually going off and whatever effects they are taking place. Now, I prefer not to fudge that dice roll, but by the same token, it means that like there's a good chance that even if you merrily wander over the pit trap, you're still not going to set it off. So I think most of the time, that actually works for the benefit of the players rather than me just having on a map. Like, there's a pit trap in this sort of flagstone and if you tread on it, it opens and down you go. But I think that's probably just a quirk of, like, the old um, BX systems. I know it's a shocker. Scenario number two, I agree with John. I think the other option is, instead of worrying about fudging dice, definitely you're pacing your combat. All that's got to get sorted out and figured out. You, you know, as far as players and how long they have you can always implement the hand thing right where you hold your hand your open hand up and then you slowly close your fingers so they have five seconds to make their thing and when you're when you have a fist their their chance to do an action's over um or have a little hourglass i guess but the other thing you can do is depending what they're fighting in the scenario the enemy could just leave right the enemy could try to run away Especially they're fighting a monster or like a semi-intelligent, non-intelligent thing. Maybe it runs off. Or maybe the bad guys take off and and you and your mind edit the story so they have a reason for taking off. Like they've delayed the party enough. Now they're going to fall back to another position. So you could always have break the combat up other ways. Yeah, good points, Jason. And I think another thing that's often missed when people are talking about D&D... Uh, I certainly like in BX and Old School Essentials, and sorry to keep harping on about those editions, but the ones I know best is the morale rules for monsters. And certainly from my point of view, that doesn't tend to get used as much later on. But in the campaign I'm running at the minute, I can't count the number of times I'm like, oh, the players have killed like half of the monsters. All right, you make a morale check. Oh, they've failed it. The dice are rolled out in the open. They fail that morale check. They start running for it. We had it happen in my last session of Smoke and Snow. They were fighting against these weird sort of like skulls and man creatures. And they killed half of them. They turned around and started to flee. And the player characters cut them down while they were running away. Which I just sort of smoothed over. Because I was like, there's no point rolling all the dice just to cut down these like monsters that are fleeing. So yeah, you've killed them. And that shortened the the sort of combat scenario quite a lot but didn't lose the drama of it okay we're up to scenario three i think with the little kids i again pretty much agree with john you know there are a bunch of other games out there and you know depending on the age of the kids you know it's okay to show them that they died but the other thing you could do especially you know whether little kids or 
or kids you're worried about them dying is you have control over your game world as a DM. And you can, ahead before the game, just make your decision that, hey, if they hit zero hit points, they're going to be knocked unconscious, and now they're going to be captured. So, you know, you know, oh, you know, your zero hit points, you know, fade to black, and then you open this next scene up where they are captured, and th- th- now they have to escape because they're prisoners, or you know. So you could easily do that, and and so I think you have the options of do, doing things like that as opposed to just killing them. And I don't think you're really cheating by doing that at all. Hey guys, so I finished part two of the fudging dice thing. I don't really have any more comments to add, but I'm glad you guys put this out there. Thank you, and look forward to future episodes of Red Dice Diaries. Take care. Hi Jason, really glad you enjoyed listening to it, and thanks for the responses. Yeah, it's been great to get so much feedback on that episode. Who'd have thought dice fudging would have been such a popular uh, subject? Well, well, us obviously, that's why we did the episode. But it's been really lovely to get the feedback from people. Hopefully we can get together and sync our schedules up to do some more episodes, both discussion and in the future. A few people have said they'd like to see more monster episodes from us, so we're hoping to like do some of those in the future once we can decide on what monsters we want to cover. And next up, we've got a call from Joe over at Hindsightless. Take it away, Joe. Hey Hannah, hey John, awesome episode on episodes on when it might be possibly all right to fudge a dice roll. So yeah, John, I'm with you. I roll out in the open, but that's a topic for a different day. Let's take the topic at face value. Okay, let's say I'm rolling secretly uh, and Mike's at the table with the rest of the group. Mike is a ranger or druid with a really cool animal companion, a big gray wolf that he loves. They're out on an adventure. During the course of the game... Uh, you find out that, yeah, Mike's dog just died yesterday. Uh, he hadn't said anything yet because he wasn't ready to talk about it, but he wanted to come play D&D with his, you know, with his buddies, hang out. Okay. <laughs> Did they get in a fight? And it's coming down to it, and you roll some damage on the dice for the wolf, and you're going to kill the wolf. Do you fudge it then? Maybe? Anyway, peace out. Hi, Joe. Uh, yeah, that was the kind of thing I was alluding to when I said having a bad day. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I didn't mean literally having a bad day. I meant having a really bad time of things, which, as you say, often you don't know about until you've sat down and started the game. Yeah, and I mean, I think, again, it comes down to, as, as we were saying in the episode, it's how much you sort of know slash trust your group. Because if it's a group of like friends you see on the regular, and you, you're probably going to know if you don't know what's going on, you'll probably know they've had a bit of a, a crappy time, and you know you can maybe sort of say if you know you're going into like a high octane sort of horror like body slash gore whatever scenario, you can maybe be like, oh maybe let's not play that mission tonight, maybe let's do a little side trek or something like that. Whereas I think if it's a group of people you maybe don't know as well it might be a bit more difficult to to sort of like intuit when someone's having a bad day. Well, and I don't mean like if someone comes in looking a bit miserable, they could have just had like a crappy day at work. But we mean like someone who's had like a really bad day, as Hannah was saying. So I think it's a bit more difficult with that. And I think that that's why a lot of the conversations around safety tools and sort of stuff like that come mm-hmm. up. But obviously that's a much bigger topic 
than we're covering here. But yeah, I think by and large, if you if you're playing with your friends, as you said in the the um, episode, sweetie, if you're playing with your friends, you're gaming with your friends to all have a good time. So if you can do something within your reasonable sort of bounds to try and make sure everyone has a good time. I think, yeah, you probably should. That's probably one of the circumstances where maybe it's all right to fudge something. I think you're probably all right there. Although, as I say, I'd probably look at the scenario if it was like a scenario I thought was possibly going to have like an impact of that. And I'd be like, maybe I'll just push that to one side for a little bit and we'll, we'll try something else. But in the situation that Joe was talking about, we said, oh, like the person's just lost his dog and then like his wolf companion gets killed in the game. Yeah, that, that that's a bit harsh, to be honest. Maybe, maybe just have it like severely... That's a role I'm definitely fudging. I mean, I, I probably would fudge it, but I'd probably... I'd probably basically still have the animal companion taken out of the fight, but I'd maybe say, like, oh, it's really seriously injured. Now we've got a bit of an adventure where, like, you're trying to get him to, like, whatever the fancy equivalent of a vet's is to, like, get him sorted out. Then you can have a whole little adventure with that. And they I get... don't know, depending on the circumstances of what happened with the dog the day before, you probably don't want to be looking to the, like, running the injured animal to the vets no 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 but um, you, you know what i mean you have some sort of scenario where the player character has an opportunity some, to save that that animal companion maybe so they get the triumph like, of that um, menchie's adventure in uh excel saga where the animals taken away f- like physically from the group it's fine they just need to go and find it again um but yeah again nuances of things like that you have to tailor it exactly to a situation in a group you can't possibly plan for something no, like that you, you're absolutely right <laughs> i mean obviously by the nature of like this podcast obviously we don't know what's going on in everyone's game out there we're sort of talking in sort of like very sort of general terms mm. but again that comes down to the point where you as the gm hopefully you know your group well enough that you can make those judgment calls far better than we can because you know what's going on, you know sort of like when one of your people has had a really bad day and you can sort of work out a way that you can all still have fun. And I'd hope that that's what any sort of reasonably caring person would do in a game situation. Although I do sort of feel guilty that I killed a player's dog in the last session of my game. No, it's fine, it's fine. It was his in-character dog. As far as I'm aware, he hadn't lost a dog or anything like that earlier on. It was just like a dog he'd bought in a town fairly recently, but unfortunately he got gacked in a combat. So under that circumstances, I wasn't fussed about it. But yeah, like we say, it very much depends on the context. Anyway, I think Jason's back with something to say. So uh, take it away, Jason. Hey, John, Jason here. Just want to comment on your recent money episode. Thought it was very good. Yeah, definitely the key is balancing between abstraction and spreadsheets you know because you don't want to play papers and paychecks but at the same time it is interesting and i think having a regular day job at least until they get elevated to more important things like being warden or whatever is an interesting dynamic i'm in a pathfinder 2 game run by carl rodriguez where we have that and we're playing in a town and we're supposed to have jobs between adventures things like that and interestingly enough pathfinder 2 has a feat specifically around your professional job. So that feat basically, if you roll poorly for your monthly income or how you did the job that month, it helps keep you from you know, earning less than normal or something like that. I'd have to go back and read the feat. But it's interesting they have a feat 
based around your daily job. The other thing with, of course, Pathfinder, and this is probably in later editions of D&D, I don't know, but crafting is really big in Pathfinder, no doubt based off of video games and things I don't play. But apparently in video games, like crafting, you know, building your own items and creating your own items, modifying your items is a really big thing. Mind you, I haven't really played video games since the Atari 2600. So Pitfall is like the epitome of video games for me. But that said, crafting is really big in Pathfinder. And it's definitely another money sink players can drop their money into. But the other thing crafting does, it lets them make their own magic items, make their own items for cheaper than it would be for them to buy them usually. Or they can make things that are not normally available in the market. So it's an interesting dynamic. But you have to want to play in a high fantasy world that has like magic chops and all for all that to really work take care yeah thanks again jason uh, glad you liked the money episode as i was saying in the episode and as you were just saying there obviously we don't want the the sort of day-to-day occupations and sort of drudgery of work to take over from the excitement of adventuring because that's what we're there for the exciting bits but having those sort of like background elements you know can add a bit of extra flavor to your campaign world like you know if you're the apprentice to like the local baker in town you know there's a baker in town and various other subsidiary industries that relate to that and without doing a lot of extra work it's added a bit more three-dimensionality to your setting it's also a handy way of getting like a little bit of extra cash between games and also if complications occur then maybe adventures can be spun off from that. I mean, let's say the um, the player characters are about to deliver a pie to someone, if we're talking about our fictional like baking apprentice, and as they're delivering this pie, they find like a, a gold ring or like a severed human finger in the pie. And then maybe they have to maybe they get blamed for it, or maybe they have to track down like how did this ring end up in the pile? Like what's going on with it? Is someone attempting to smuggle things out of the city in baked goods? Who knows? You could spin adventures off it. And like I say, it it gives you a lot of background and a lot of like texture to your world without a great deal of extra work. And I think that's a pretty good bargain, to be honest. As for the whole crafting thing, yeah, the sort of like the the computer RPGs with like crafting in have pretty much sort of passed me by, to be honest. I, I've only recently started doing a little bit of computer gaming again after a long time. Don't look at me, I just play Minecraft. Yeah, Hannah just likes a Minecraft. I pretty much play on like Civilization and Stellaris and occasionally Sid Meier's Pirates, or if I'm feeling particularly retro, Oregon Trail. And that's pretty much about it. So none of this like crafting malarkey. However, I do quite like the idea of crafting in RPGs. It's not something I've really seen in like OSR games, which tends to be my game of choice. But yeah, I quite like the idea of having something to sink your money into. It's a big thing at the LARP system, and it yeah, sounds like yeah. it works quite similarly. You know, you start off low level, you can craft low level stuff, you build up the skill enough, you can craft high level stuff and sell it for lots of money. Yeah, and one of the things I was saying in the um, the money episode is that quite often you get so much loot that like you don't really have anything to spend it on. Like until later level, you know, when you start building your fortress or whatever your base of operations. Like when you're sort of like at mid level and you've um, you've sort of accumulated a lot of treasure, but you've not you've bought all your equipment. You co- certainly in the games I run, you can't really go out and buy magic stuff. 
So you're like, well, what do I do with all this money? I'm basically just sat on like a big stack of gold with nothing to do with it. And various games have offered different sort of suggestions as to what you can do, like putting it into businesses, opening mm-hmm. shops and stuff like that. But I think even if you're not doing magical crafting, because like wizards can do scrolls and clerics can do scrolls and whatever, that I like the idea of just being able to like build non-standard stuff. Or maybe you can maybe you can make a sword with a particularly finely like keen edge or something like that. Just something so the players can like individualize their equipment and also it gives them something to spend this money on. Because you can get a bit blase about money in like D D, let's face it. When you're like, oh, another another five thousand gold pieces, throw it on the pile with the rest of it. Well then the the treasure's really sort of lost its edge. And you can't have everything be like magic items or that'd just be ridiculous. So I think trying to find a way to give people stuff to spend money on is quite important because it makes the money have value if you sort of see what I'm saying. Whereas if it's just like this generic thing, like oh, I've got my XP for the treasure, and now I just throw it in that pile and occasionally I'm like, oh yeah, I need 10 gold pieces for provisions. It doesn't have any impact at all. But no, thank you very much, Jason. I love the idea of crafting. I might have to see if I can find some sort of OSR system or steal the Pathfinder system because I've got a Pathfinder mm-hmm. one and maybe use that in a future game. Who knows? But love the idea. Thanks very much. So that's it for our voicemail episode this time. Thanks to all our wonderful callers. Glenn Halstrom, a.k.a. Old Man Grognard. Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Joe from Hindsightless. Randy from Biggest Geekers, and of course Taylor from Clerics Wear Ringmail. We'll put links to the descriptions of all of those guys' podcasts in the description of this show. So until we catch you again, take care, stay safe, and whatever you're playing, have fun. Bye.